Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am Katie Morton. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. If you're new here, welcome. Each week, I answer your questions about anything related to mental health, therapy, relationships, all that stuff. Um, I find these questions over on the community tab of my podcast YouTube channel. So if you're watching this on YouTube, you're already halfway there. You click the channel, which is called Opinions That Don't Matter. That's the name of the podcast I do with my husband, Sean. Go over to the community tab on that main page and I ask for them usually around like 2 or 3 p.m. Central Standard Time on Sundays, okay? And if you're looking to get your questions answered each and every month over on my Patreon page, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Katie Morton. I answer roughly 25 to 35, depends on the month questions each and every month in our extra monthly live stream. There's also extra videos. There's a community discord. And even at $1 a month, you can access those live streams and participate in the chat. So head on over there and check that out. Okay, without further ado, let's jump into today's questions. And the first question says, Hi, Katie, why is it that my mind goes blank during therapy sessions? Before and after I have a lot of thoughts wandering through my mind. But once I'm in therapy, they're all gone. And oftentimes I can't even think straight. After my sessions, I'm very frustrated and angry at myself because of that. Any tips besides writing my thoughts down? Now, our mind can go blank for a couple of reasons. And the first, and I would assume most common, is that going to therapy, even though it's a great thing, is emotionally charged. Meaning, the sheer act of of getting up and going to it, we already start thinking about the things we want to say. And in that process, can, without realizing it, send ourselves into our stress response or our fight, flight, freeze, right? Because we think about things that are stressing us out, the traumas maybe that we know we need to process and we don't know if we want to talk about, the issues in our relationships, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that can cause our nervous system to feel like it's under threat and we are thrown into fight, flight, freeze. Now, when the stress response is ignited, it throws off our prefrontal cortex, which is part of organized thought. And I say that because when that's offline, of course, we can't think about what we really want to say or put it into any cohesive sentence when we're in session. Frankly, our brain's just not up to the task. Now, I know that might be a leap and some of you are like, really, I don't think that that's it for me. But that's just one thought that I have. And I know for some of my patients, especially the ones who are going through a trauma or trying to process something that's very disturbing to them in the moment, that happens a lot. They're like, I forgot what I was saying, or I don't even know where I was going with this, or they just forget to bring it up. 
And then that's why we have a couple of reasons why. One of the reasons why we have what are called doorknob confessions. So when you're about to leave therapy, you're like, oh, by the way, and we'll just blurt something out. It can be because we're not ready to really talk about it, but also because we're coming out of that intense feeling or stress response. And we're like, oh, don't forget this, right? And that can be our way of just dumping and running because we don't have to talk about it. So there's no emotional charge because we know we don't have to get into it. Do you see what I'm saying? That could be why. It could also be because there's maybe so much to talk about. And if we haven't written down, I know you said other than writing down your thoughts, but if we haven't gotten into the practice of journaling or at least bullet pointing some of the things we want to bring up in therapy, going there can feel overwhelming because we're like, I don't even know where to begin. There's so much. And sometimes when we don't have any concrete idea of what we need to talk about, meaning we haven't written it down, we haven't maybe talked about it with a friend or processed it through in some other way, maybe bullet pointed it out. If we haven't done that, we can go in there and and get lost in our own chaos. And then our therapist will just ask like, hey, how was your week? They're going to start, you know, asking questions. But if they they can't read our minds, right? And if they don't prompt the right question or the right answer, rather, then we won't be able to get into what we really needed to get into. Does that make sense? Okay. So I think that's part of why our mind could go blank. I think it's really that stress because I even do this in the doctor's office. Like I'll have a bunch of questions I want to ask and I'm like waiting and they come in and I'm kind of like, oh, they're here. And then I just forget what I was going to say. And I think part of it is like being put on the spot and not having notes to reference and the fact that it's kind of stressful and we could be embarrassed, you know, and we forget to bring those things up or our mind just goes blank because it's it's stressful and a stress response. Anyways, okay. So those are just some thoughts. If any of that resonates with you, maybe you have other thoughts about why your mind goes blank, feel free to leave those in the comments. Those are just my hypotheses or uh, thoughts that I have about it. But let's get into how how do you make sure that this doesn't happen or how do you make sure that you get through what you need to get through in therapy without your mind going blank other than writing it down. Because that would be my number one tip would be to have a little notebook or even just notes on your phone where you jot down thoughts that you have so that you can make sure, even if you're like, uh, when the therapist says, so what do you want to work on today? Because sometimes therapists do that. I don't personally, but sometimes I will, right? And if you're like, I don't know, then you'd have those notes to reference. So that's my number one, but I know you said other than that. Second is to give your nervous system some release before session. So get up in the morning, you know, you have a session that day. Maybe we do a little extra self-care in the morning, do some journaling, maybe to get some of that out. Maybe we take a longer shower, make sure that we eat, make sure you drink enough water. I want you to do a full body shake, maybe in the restroom before you go in to wait in for the session in the waiting room. Maybe if there's nobody in the waiting room, just do it really quick, kind of shake out like this. Just takes a couple seconds. No one's going to come in. And if someone does, just like, you know, do that and finish it. No one's going to think that's weird. People do it all the time. Act like your sleeve is tied up. Um, getting some of that energy out of our nervous system could, we're kind of like triggering a release of that stress response. Now, is it going to be enough for sure to make sure, like to ensure that our mind doesn't go blank? No, but we're giving, that's an option. That's something that we could do. Um, and I think those basic self-care things will help also. And then my third tip is to tell your therapist this is happening. Because if they know that, Sometimes they can guide us through something. They can remind us to do a full body shake. They can do a full body shake with us. 
They can ask you at different times in the session, you know, do you remember any of the things you wanted to bring up? They can tell you to reference your notes. They can be an advocate and an assistant to get you to that point where you can say what you need to say. Those are really my tips. I wish there was like a, oh, this is going to work, but everybody's body is different. Everyone's going to experience this differently. So try a few things out and see what works for you. Okay. A comment on this said, this is so relatable. I have this too. But ever since my first therapy session with my therapist, oh, my therapist, quote unquote, feels with me. Okay. Stick with me. So I don't quite know how to explain this, but I'll try. In my therapy, my therapist uses focusing to teach me how to connect with my bodily sensations and related emotions. Okay, sounds great. She also cries with me during every session. Hmm. Because I'm currently very upset about some things in my life myself. Is it normal for me to feel almost nothing or numb, even though my therapist cries because she feels my sadness in the room? This is weird. I'm curious about your thoughts about this. And sorry if my English is not good. I'm Dutch. Your English is impeccable. Thanks for all you do, Katie. I hope you have a good day. I hope you have a great day too. Okay. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with a therapist drawing attention to our bodies and trying to get us to connect with the feelings or the sensations that could be coming up. There's nothing wrong with that. I do find it strange that they will cry even when you're not crying because she feels the sadness in the room. To me, that is like not that healthy only because I know the emotional toll that can take on a therapist. And that just, it doesn't seem like a very healthy therapeutic boundary in my opinion. Okay. This is my opinion. This isn't like legal. She's not doing anything illegal or wrong necessarily. I don't find it very helpful or therapeutic. I don't know if you do, but that's just very strange. I just want to draw attention to that. I don't, I don't really know the therapeutic benefit of that because if you can't experience it and you can't acknowledge it, I don't know how her feeling it is helping because then I'd be afraid that you might, not saying you do, but some people might turn into the caretaker role where then they're worried about their therapist and their experiences being too much for them, so on and so forth. And so I would want to, I don't really like that, but that's me. Now, um, the question here is, is it normal for me to feel almost nothing or numb, even though my therapist cries? Okay, yes. So the nothing or numb isn't a feeling. I have to put that out there because I mentioned this before in another podcast a couple of weeks ago, how I was talking with my neighbor that I'm doing the Artist Way workbook with. And she was talking about how she was in this like uh, group session and they had to like circle some emotions, things they were feeling. And she's like, I was looking through it and thinking, well, where's numb? That's how I feel. I feel numb. And she's like, and the therapist running the group was like, uh, numb's not a feeling. It's not. And so I just, I just want to draw like attention to that, that. You don't feel numb. You feel nothing. Now, the reason that you feel nothing or numb is just disconnection. And the reason that usually happens is because it's too, it's not just emotionally charged. I know you're like, but I don't feel anything. How can it be emotionally charged? It can be the fear of what that experience might do to us. It could be the uh, disconnect that we've created to keep ourselves safe. Now, a lot of people will say, you know, I, I don't know how to reconnect to my body, right? And if I try to get in my body, I dissociate. So I don't feel anything in my body. I'm just numb. Or I don't feel anything in my head, right? I don't have any real thoughts or emotions connected to anything because 
potentially. If I tapped into that, I'm afraid of what I'll come across. I don't want to feel that bad. I've heard people say, I feel like I'm going to come unraveled or like this dam is going to break and all the emotions that I've been stuffing my whole life are going to just drown me, right? We can be scared of all that. I'm here to tell you that that's not what's going to happen, but I know it feels very out of control. And that out of control feeling can be really triggering and make us do all of our defense mechanisms to protect ourselves. But that numbness comes from the disconnection out of what we feel is a necessity to keep ourselves safe, emotionally, physically, or both. And so that numbness is protective. And it's, so once we can see it as that, then we can start to kind of work into, like if we were trying to get into our bodies and experience how things are in our bodies, one of the first tips that Dr. Peter Levine, um, the, I guess, godfather or the creator of somatic experiencing, he talks about getting in the shower and feeling the water, like taking a handheld shower wand and like feeling the water on your your hands and your arms and how it runs down your head and just trying to draw attention to that. Or like as you get in a tub and you put your feet in, how does that warm water feel? You know, trying to pay attention to how clothes feel in your body and just doing more of that exercise is like building that new muscle. So there are ways to get us back into our bodies. There are ways to start identifying some emotions little by little. Um, maybe I have my patients usually pick out what I call like neutral emotions, not too intense. So happiness can be really triggering. Sadness can be really triggering. Anger can be triggering. But things that aren't are like, I feel relaxed. That might be okay. I feel pleased. I feel comfortable. Those can be things that we could, you know, maybe just I feel a little irritable or agitated. That might not be too triggering. There's certain emotions that won't be so overwhelming to you. And I would encourage you to get that feelings wheel. Just go to feelingswheel.com and either save that page or print it or download it or whatever. Um, And just pick a couple that don't seem too overwhelming. And let's start writing about those emotions? What do we, uh, what are the judgments we have about them? How do they feel in our bodies? Describe it to me if without using that emotion word, what it's like and start to get to know them little by little. And that'll help you kind of reconnect. I hope I didn't get too off base there. And I hope that that was helpful. Let's move on to question number two. Question number two says, Katie, I don't see the point of living. I really don't understand why people want to live. And especially why people bring kids into this awful world. I don't see the point of living. And I felt this way since I was a teenager and I'm 29 now. I've gone to therapy and I take my meds and I feel better than I did. But is this still considered depression? Please don't tell me to get help as I have tried for several years. I'm just ready to go at this point. <clears throat> this is a, a an important topic to address, especially, I mean, obviously we're in or maybe we won't, we'll be just out of it because I'm recording this in May, but I don't know if we'll still be in May when this goes live. But either way, mental health awareness is important. And people always ask what I'm doing for Mental Health Awareness Month. And I'm like, same thing I do every month, um, mental health awareness. Now, it's important for us to understand that depression and suicidal thoughts are different. And they don't always occur together. They sometimes do and oftentimes do. I don't know what the percentage I would say, let's say 65, 70% of people who have depression, also have suicidal thoughts, but I'm just, that's me just guessing. So you might be wondering, well, what do you mean, Katie? How can someone have suicidal thoughts and not be depressed? Depression is its, uh, has its own set 
of diagnostic criteria, symptoms that we're going to experience, things like anhedonia, where we don't like the things we used to like, uh, changes in appetite and sleep, um, difficulty concentrating, just to name a few, right? And just overall feeling sad and down most days. Those are all symptoms of depression. One of those symptoms could be having thoughts of suicide. People with depression don't always have those thoughts, okay? So I'm just putting that out there. That can be part of it, but is not always part of it. And the same goes for suicidal thoughts. I have patients who don't have symptoms of depression. They might have down days, but it doesn't meet the criteria. And yes, I know the DSM criteria is not the end all be all, but just hang with me here. Now, I'll have people who have thoughts of ending it, don't really see the purpose, kind of just feel like they're floating aimlessly in life and they've, you know, have these at least ideations where they think about taking their own life, but they don't have any other symptoms of depression. That's the only one. So that can happen as well. And I'm curious if your suicidal thoughts are, so here is a couple of questions, okay? If your suicidal thoughts aren't part of your depression, which might be why your meds and therapy isn't actually improving that. You said you're better than you used to be, which is awesome. But I don't know if it's connected. And that might be why you've kind of like reached the point of, it's like as far as it can take you. I also might consider changing medications or trying something different because I have so many patients and members of our community who haven't felt full alleviation of their symptoms after trying you know, one, two, three, four meds. Sometimes we need to try something different. Um, there's even off-label uses for medications that people found helpful, like ADHD meds for some of my patients who have ADHD and depression has helped their depression. You know, there's things, talk to your doctor. I'm not a doctor, but that I might consider that. But I also have, I'm always, when someone's been in this state for a very long time, like you said, since you were a teen and now you're 29, and you felt this way for this long, I'm always suspicious of the comfortability with this emotional state. Yes, I know you're like, Katie, it's not comfortable. I don't like it. It feels shitty, but it's quote unquote normal for you. It's your baseline. Maybe you might struggle to remember a time when you didn't feel this way. And unfortunately, when we get comfortable feeling one, some kind of way, then it can be hard for us to find our way out because if we feel differently, we can be suspicious. I'm going to get relaxed. Shit's going to happen. It's going to be worse. I'm not sure where this like good feelings coming from feels a little. Uh, I'm going to instead go back to what I'm comfortable with. And in essence, we can kind of sabotage our own. I'm not, I don't want to call it just treatment, but our own process, our own recovery, because the thought of feeling a different kind of way is too foreign. Now, I don't know if any of this is true. I'm just, I'm posing the questions that if you were in my office with me, I would, I would ask you because I'd want to know, where do we think this is coming from? And so I'm asking you, where do you think this is coming from? This has been going on for a long time. A lot of the help that you've received has been helpful, but not to the fullest extent. Why do you think that is? What do you think it is that's holding you back? What is it that like gets in the way of you seeing a point, the point of living? Do we have anything that we look forward to? I would challenge you to think of things that you would like to do, places you'd like to go, experiences you would like to have. Like I'll name a couple for myself. <clears throat> Maybe that will get you thinking about things. I love to travel. You guys know this. And I feel like invigorated by it or like recharged through it. And I there's so much of the world because I didn't grow up 
you know, we didn't have money. We, I never flew. I flew once to like Disneyland. I think that was it my whole life until I was 18, obviously. Like, and then I went to college and then I'm an adult and I get to fly all over the place. But because of that, I haven't seen much of the world. I haven't seen Spain or Italy. I haven't seen, I've only seen a small portion of Australia. I'd still love to go back to Australia, go to, you know, New Zealand, Tasmania. There's so much to see. Um, haven't been to Japan. That's one of the things on the top of my list of things to see. Even parts of the states in Canada, I haven't seen. I've been to Mexico City. There's so many places. So for me, that would be a, a point of living. I want to see different things. I love to experience different cultures. I love to meet people in those areas, have them tell me what they do and what they eat and where they go and blah, blah, blah. I love that. That's a point of living. I also love Sean and would love to see what, you know, to grow old with him and to get to experience what that's like and, you know, sit on our front porch and rocking chairs or something like that. You know, I'd love to live to see that. And there's also still so much that I want to do in my life. And so anyways, I'm giving those ideas as maybe hopefully sparks for you for things that maybe you would like to do. Now, thinking of the point of living, sometimes I feel like depressive thoughts or suicidal thoughts are so specific when most people don't have a specific answer. Like, what's the point of living? There's not like a specific answer. Everyone's is going to be different. Everyone's going to have different things that they say if you ask them that. Like, I just told you some of the reasons that I want. And I encourage you, instead of getting caught up in this thought spiral that, like I said, you probably had those thoughts like a gazillion times and looking for the point of living, let's look for the things that we would enjoy or that we are looking forward to. Things that we either know we like doing because we've done them already, we'd like to do them again, or something that we we think we might enjoy. I know it might be hard. I know you're like, everything's going to suck. That We don't know that. Check your facts. Depression and suicidal thoughts don't operate on facts, they operate on emotions, and they operate on this like this negativity bias that we have in our brain, which is really protective. But they operate in that. And if we challenge them just a little bit with like, what's something I would look forward to? What's a thing that I like doing? Like this can be simple, like back in the day before DVRs and before we had, you know, Netflix and everything in the way that we do now, I used to look forward to like one of my favorite shows every week. Oh, and I used to, I loved you guys. Okay, I love Grey's Anatomy. Yes. I would look forward to it every week. I think it was Thursday nights. I might be wrong, but I think it was Thursday nights. And then I loved Parenthood for a while. So I had these shows that I would look forward to because I could record them and watch them without commercials because I could fast forward, which is amazing. Um, and that's like DVR time. But growing up, I remember like CSI, I had to watch it in the moment and I would look forward to it each week look for silly things like that. Is there anything that you look forward to that you have happen with regularity? Like maybe it's a podcast coming out. Maybe it's the fact that you know that, I don't know, this sounds silly too, but like Fridays is uh, a certain sandwich day at your sandwich shop and you get excited to have our chowder day or whatever. Um, and I know all of this sounds very trivial and very small, but life isn't about the big things. It isn't about these huge things we look forward to. I look forward to you know, uh, moving out and getting married and graduating and da, 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 and all this stuff, these big events. It's not really about that. Life's about the small joys and depression and suicidal thoughts try to take that from us. And we can let them if we don't check the facts and look for things that support something different. So I just challenge you in that space to 
find some things that you like doing or you would like to do or both and spend a little time thinking about that. And notice what comes up for you when you try. Does this negative thought spiral get louder? Does it get stronger and use more intense words or thoughts? What happens? Or do you find it lessens a little bit? Let's pay attention to that. And I know it can feel like the help is not helping, but sometimes I think we just need a different approach because medication and talk therapy can only sometimes get us so far. You might find some like helpful tools or techniques in group therapy. Um, I think group is actually really great for those of us who are in depression, uh, ep- depressive episodes or having suicidal thoughts because we can isolate, which just further supports our negative thought spirals. It could be good to move your body, maybe do some somatic therapy or even just exercising. I know my depressed patients, my suicidal patients do not exercise, don't want to exercise, don't want to move their bodies. And I think part of it is because then it keeps us held in that shitty state where we know if we do exercise and move our bodies that we release endorphins. Endorphins feel good. Why wouldn't we want to do that? You know, Um, so just a couple of thoughts on that. Um, I hope that that helps. I hope that that at least gives you some insight into it. I could tell you all the things that people say all the time, you know, like don't make a temporary choice or what is it they say? Don't make a permanent choice about a temporary situation or a temporary feeling and all those kind of what I'd call like shareable quotes. And it's all true, but I know that that doesn't resonate because it's coming from a place of, of not understanding how you feel. And I'm not saying I know how you feel. I'm just giving you some ways that I think or I found to be helpful to combat that thought process. Now, there was a comment on this as I can relate 100%. I first thought of suicide when I was in junior high school, and I'm now 53, and I still think of it often. This week has been one of those. I see my psychologist weekly and my psychiatrist once a month, constantly working on mental health, but those thoughts just don't go away. Katie, any suggestions for making life possibly happy or at least not at least not like this? Thanks for everything you do. I felt like I already answered that because I kind of went on a tangent about things that you could do. Um, I would love to hear your thoughts in the comments below too. If you've been in that situation, you've had thoughts like that, how did you pull yourself out? What advice would you give to like younger you before you went through it? Because I do know that negativity just grows in negativity and that our brain is already wired to seek out threat. So once we keep feeding it those negative thoughts and the negative outcomes and thinking nothing's worth it and it starts to like shut down our light and our uh, hope for the future, you know, we keep looking for more things to support that essentially. And so instead of continuing down that path and letting those thoughts run free, we have to challenge them. We have to look for things that we would like to do. Is there a type of place you'd like to see? There's this guy, um, a member of our community has been sharing his videos with me, but he loves locomotives or trains and his joy overseeing certain trains going just down a track in the UK or wherever he is. He's in Europe, but he has a British accent um, is just amazing. Now, I don't know anything about trains and I'm not excited about trains, but I will watch him because he is. So what are you excited about? What's something weird you want to do, a place you want to go, something you want to see? Is there a celebrity you'd like to meet or a um, a certain place where a, a show you like to watch was filmed? Any of those things. Think about it. We all have something. And don't let depression tell you that you don't have it because I know it's there. We just have to look for it. Okay. 
Let's move on to question number three. This question says, hi, Katie. I struggle a lot with guilt and shame due to what I put my family through due to my mental illness. For example, the worry um, the worry they had, the suicide attempts, etc. I feel like a horrible person due to all of this and fear that those things are the reason for the dysfunction in my family now, rather than my dysfunctional family having contributed to my illness. Hmm. Memories have come back up with lots of difficult events and things that I did to myself and the feelings are overwhelming. How can I cope with this guilt and shame when I have no way to ever make up for the damage I've created? Are suicide attempts potentially traumatic? Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. Now, when it comes to making up with for the damage we've created, I I prefer personally to not think of like making up for it because frankly, we can't for anything most of the time. When we've hurt someone or damaged a relationship or done something traumatic to people we love, we can't really make up for it. But what we can do is apologize and hear them out and start that difficult and uncomfortable conversation. Now, is it going to be easy? No. Are we going to like doing it? No. Do we know that they're going to respond well? No. But in order for us to move past it, sometimes there's this process we have to go through where we acknowledge the pain we caused others. We don't have to take 100% ownership over our mental illness. Like you said, like the dysfunction in your family could have led up to your mental illness. That can be part of it. That's their side of the street to clean. But your actions and the harmful things you did are your side of the street to clean. So we have to own up for uh, own up to that and own up for the the ways that we hurt them and maybe hurt ourselves, right? And so I think really the way to start moving forward when you feel ready, you might not feel ready yet, but is to start having conversations about what happened and apologize for it, okay? And then the second component of dealing with that guilt and shame is to challenge those thoughts with facts, Thoughts are not facts, by the way. We have all sorts of thoughts all day and they can be based in nothing. They come out of nowhere. They can come again and having a thought a bunch of different times does not turn it into a fact. I'm sorry. It just doesn't. So thinking, oh, I should never have done this. It's all my fault. I can't believe I did this. I'm such a bad person. Blah. blah, blah. That doesn't mean those are facts. <laughs> just thoughts. So I need to challenge those. We don't have to let them live in our head and spin around. When they come again, I want you to say, hey, what really happened? And what am I actually sorry for? Because guilt in and of itself, think of guilt. Guilt means that there was some wrongdoing, right? I'm guilty. Think of like I'm guilty in a court of law. I'm guilty because there was evidence to support, they could prove that I did something wrong. What did you do wrong? And we can acknowledge that. And the other shit, we've got to work to let go and not feed those thoughts anymore. Okay, I know it's hard. I know it's tedious, but trust me, it's worth it. You're worth it. Okay. Now, the shame component, I want to move into your second part of the question Are suicide attempts potentially traumatic? 100%. I don't think we talk about this enough how attempting to take our own life can be obviously terrifying. To even be in that dark of a place and think that that's our only option is a pretty traumatizing and terrifying place to be, right? I think we'd all admit that's scary. And the attempt on our life is just that, an attempt on our life, right? 
We tried to, to, we tried to end it. That's scary. You know, we talk about trauma where we fear for the safety of ourselves or someone else. We feared for our own safety. Sure, it could have been in our own hand, but that doesn't make it less terrifying or traumatizing. I think that's where the shame is coming from because those actions, we can think, well, something's just wrong with me and I'm broken. Nothing's wrong with you. You're not broken. You went to a really dark place that I don't wish on anybody, but you're out on the other side of it. I want you to continue fighting back against it. Um, And I think talking about it in a more honest way with your family and even with yourself is that path out. You've been through a shitty experience, a shitty time. You had a, your mental illness was, you know, running the roost for a while. Now we're wanting to work through it. And, and, you know, that old, the old song, I always talk about the bear hunt where you can't go around it, can't go under it, gotta go through it. We're, you're going through it. And that can mean we have to acknowledge the pain that was caused. That also means we have to acknowledge our own pain and the things we've been through. And it's gonna take, you know, working both sides of it and talking about the the suicide attempt. It was traumatic. We have to process that. Give yourself time and space to do that. Okay. And I'm glad you're here. Okay. We have a comment on this. It says, Katie, as an add-on, how do you make amends with the people you affected through your mental illness? We have to give them time and space to digest our apology, but we have to apologize we have to own up to our side of the street. That doesn't always mean taking 100% of it, right? It always takes two to cause issues, but that doesn't mean we can't acknowledge and apologize for our actions. And that's what I'd encourage you to do and give them time to think about it. it this will be multiple conversations. This isn't just one apology and then moving on. This might be something <clears throat> might be something that we bring up and then they aren't wanting to talk about it and we have to try again. It might be something that we bring up and we apologize and they say, I forgive you. And, you know, we move on and we change in the way that we said we were or we already did. You know, it might be a conversation we keep having over months or maybe even years about stuff like that. And they might bring up things like, for instance, an example of like multiple conversations is I remember when my dad died, my brother was in the Peace Corps and he couldn't make it back for it. And I was so angry at him. And I yelled at him about it, like at when he got home, like a month later. Um, and he apologized. And then I yelled at him again about it. <laughs> like, I don't know, six months later, and he apologized. And then he explained a little bit more about the scenario. And then most recently we talked about it and he was like, I felt bad, but, and he's like, he walked me through what was going on and all the, the ways that he would have had to try to make it home and like rescheduling flights and all the stuff that was going on in his life. Um, and he apologized again. And I feel like that's enough for me, but I want you to know that sometimes it takes a few goes, you know, and the people have to they have to be ready to accept the apology and to forgive. And that's not something you can make them do. All you can do is show up and apologize and, and speak about what was really going on for you. But owning up, having those conversations is how we do it. Okay. Another person said, as an add-on, how do I move past a family member's outburst after finding out about my trauma? 
I came out about my sexual abuse about two years ago, and I can still vividly remember my auntie's reaction to finding out the minor details. It was her husband who afflicted the abuse. Her reaction caused my nan to drop to her knees and cry, and it destroyed me seeing just how much pain I caused by talking. You didn't cause the pain. Somebody did something to you that caused the pain that I caused by talking about it. I was shunned for a while. What? But now she's back demanding the truth about why I'm cold towards her. She's one of my biggest triggers. What do I do? I can't even look at her, let alone speak to her. How do I remove her from my life, but not hurt the rest of my family? Oh my goodness. Um, I can't believe you were shunned for a while. That's sometimes I'm just so disappointed in people's families and the way they react to someone finally talking about something so difficult. So I'm proud of you for speaking up. Unfortunately, we can't change people's reactions. We can't control how people respond. Um, I guess if you, so, okay, couple, couple ideas. Now I know that you said, what do I do? But then you said, I can't even look up. You want to remove her from your life. Now I think that because she's asking why you're cold towards her you could tell her she's asking you could tell her that's one option okay another is first of all getting into therapy and starting to process through what happened to you i'm so sorry that you had to go through that and not wanting to be in situations or places where your aunt is is something that you can decide to do you can invite your family to events without her. Um, you can show up to family events if she's not going to be there. You know, you can talk to your other family and say, I'm, you know, and they can be upset about it, but that's still your choice. That would be a boundary, um, you know, because of what happened. Essentially, you're saying, you know, she, I guess, reacted so badly or was shunned. I was shunned for because of abuse that I sustained. And because of that, I can't have you in my life anymore, right? But we're going to have to communicate about that. And we're going to have to figure out how to navigate it in a way that works. And that could look like a lot of different things that could, like I said, you, you know, could go over to your grandma's house the day after Christmas, if your aunt's going to be there on Christmas or whatever, you know, you can work around things. That's just one example, obviously. Um, I don't even know if you celebrate Christmas, but there can be a lot of different ways that we can navigate that, but we're going to have to communicate. Um, I know we sometimes think it's easier just to cut people out without any conversation, but it might be at least a little bit healing or good practice for you to tell her why you're cold towards her. It's silly that she's even demanding this. That seems like a ridiculous thing to not understand, but she wants to know. We can tell her. And then we get to decide what we in, in like engage with and what we don't engage with. And it's okay to have those boundaries. You have to protect yourself. That's a really disappointing way that your family responded. And I'm so sorry you're going through this. But get get a therapist who, you know, is trauma informed or is a trauma specialist and let's start working through this so that you can heal. Because that's what's really the most important. Another person says, on the flip side, how can friends and family members continue to keep supporting or loving in a healthy way after the potential caregiver or burnout and trauma of taking care of a highly suicidal friend and family or suicidal friends and family? Also, I started setting boundaries and there's a pinch of guilt when this friend told me she cried so much because of the boundary I set and went into crisis the next day. That's not on you. We'll get into this. My boundary was basic respect, asking her to think before she talks. And I talked through a highly triggering situation that she put me in previ previously. I don't know if I was too harsh. 
And just in case this helps, I am that person who has or is supporting five or six different people in my life who at one point or are currently still high, highly suicidal among other mental illnesses. Is it exhausting? Yep. But I'm also learning to see and love the person behind the behavior despite the hurt. And in some ways, it's been healing for me too. It's a rough journey for sure, and I'm still figuring it out. Okay. The best way to continue supporting someone in a healthy way is to first acknowledge the limitations of what we can give, right? You can't light yourself on fire to keep someone else warm. And for you telling a friend that you, you know, some things you say were hurtful, you should be able to say that in a relationship. This is the kicker is we can support people and be there for them, but that doesn't mean that we don't get to have feelings either. That would put us 100% in the caretaker role. And I'm here to tell you, that's not a relationship. Being a caretaker and it being all about the other person is what we call a one-sided relationship, potentially a toxic relationship, unless it's professional. Like people are caretakers and nurses and thank God for them. Um, But that's not a friendship, okay? Friendships are give and take, ebb and flow, um, both respecting each other, leaning on each other when we need it. And so the best way, I've said this before, but I'll say it again, the best way to support someone that we love who's having a tough time is to check in when we can and be there when we can and know that it's okay for us not to pick up our phone, not return a text if we don't have the energy or the time or we don't feel good ourselves. It's okay to still put your own self-care first right? We can't pour from an empty pitcher. I know it feels uncomfortable, but those are healthy boundaries. Again, not lighting ourselves on fire to keep someone else warm. And I know on the flip side, they're going to feel that's going to be very uncomfortable for them because they might be in crisis. But that's why it's important when we have safety plans and stuff like that, that we have a therapist, we have, you know, crisis support, we have multiple friends or family members we can reach out to depending on the time or the day or whatever, Um, people online, online groups we can join. We need to have varied support because people cannot and should not be expected to be available 24-7. That's not sustainable. And so I'm glad you set that boundary. I think you know, you can run the situation through your head. I don't know if you were too harsh. We could maybe be, I don't know, it sounds like you were just clear, but we could consider if maybe some of the language you use could have been taken in a bad way. I get, I have the feeling it wasn't, but that's just me. Um, and the fact that you're supporting that many different people who could be highly suicidal. I'm very curious about this. It's not that we can't have a bunch of friends and people in our lives who are going through it. We all go through it, right? And we we all need to be there to support each other. But when someone says they have a lot of people in their life that they're supporting through this, I'm curious if you find your own value through caring for others. And I'm wondering if if you struggle to care for yourself or not. I'm just suspicious of this and just checking in because it can't, you know, it's helpful to check in with friends. It's helpful to be there for them. It can feel good to know that someone counts on us. And I know that that might be part of this, but I just want to make sure that you're getting support too. And it's not like, oh, I'm just learning so much through their problem. No, that's not the same. Meaning that if you were in crisis, you feel like you could call them as well and they would pick up and they would show up. And that's, what's really important. So I just want to check in on that. I think the best way to support people is to know our own limits. So we're not pouring from an empty picture, put ourselves first, check in on them, show up when we can and and 
support good behavior, like things that, you know, like, oh, I'm so glad you reached out. It was, it's so good to hear from you. Or um, I'm glad you started therapy. That's wonderful. You know, we can always support things that we know could be helpful for them. And that that's really it. We just have to check in because we can't make people get better. We can't make, you know, people want to to improve. They have to do that on their own, but we can be excited for them and we can check in on them when we have the energy and the emotional capability to do that. Okay. Let's move on to question number four. This question says, Hey Katie, happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. It says my question is about flashbacks. I really didn't want to write this, but I feel a bit stuck. I think I've been having flashbacks, but I'm too scared to tell my therapist. I want, how come you're too scared? Just curious. It feels so dramatic. Uh Oh, we're minimizing already. I don't even know if they're flashbacks. Sometimes things, sometimes there are things that I remember. Sometimes they're not. And sometimes it's like I'm watching it happen to me, but I don't recognize her as me. Of course, that's very common. And sometimes it feels like I'm actually the one experiencing it. Mm -hmm. The scenes I don't remember are popping up in my mind more and more often, but I really don't want to accept that they might've actually happened. So I haven't told anyone because that makes it feel too real. I get it. Could these be flashbacks or something else? Any advice would be much appreciated. Of course. Okay. Now, flashbacks can be a lot of things. They can be all the things this person said. Like if you can feel like it's happening to you over again, you can feel like, I don't even know who that person is. Thanks to association, right? We're like, I don't know her. Ooh. It can, we can feel it in our bodies, but have no memory of it. Um, it can feel like we're watching it on a movie. It can feel like we're flipping through a photo book of our life, blah, 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 and they're like images and it's like, bam, 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 image after image. There can be these like just flashes of random bits that don't maybe even make sense and aren't cohesive. All those things are flashbacks. What you're talking about to me sounds like a flashback and the feeling that it's so dramatic just re, re-supports or reiterates the fact that I think this was a trauma that you sustained and therefore we're minimizing, we're invalidating, we're embarrassed and we're stuffing it down. Now, it's hard to bring things up with our therapist, um, especially things that feel really secretive or inside and we're not sure about. There's nothing wrong with saying to your therapist, I don't know if I'm having flashbacks, but here's what's been happening. And just saying it to the best that you can. I know it's hard to open up in therapy. Trust me, I even have my own issues with it. Some things you don't even realize how hard they are to talk about or how emotionally charged they are until you say them out loud and you're like, fuck, or you try to say them out loud and you're like, I can't say that, right? So just try. You can tell her just like you told me, like that. You sometimes it feels like it's happening to you. Sometimes it feels like you're watching yourself. They are flashbacks that they can be experienced in a lot of different ways. Um, I know it can be hard to admit that something like that might've happened to us. That's a huge part of trauma work. And I don't think we talk about that enough. Just the, the admission that something bad happened, the acceptance maybe that we were traumatized. All of that can be really, really hard for us to accept or acknowledge in any kind of way. So give yourself time, but you could bring up with her maybe whatever feels the least difficult to talk about the the version that doesn't feel so overwhelming and tell her, you, you know, you've been having these weird, like things you think might be flashbacks. Um, yeah, they're definitely flashbacks. I wish I had a better answer, but, but that's what they are. Now, the comment on this is I struggle with this as well. Flashbacks of things I do remember happening and of things I don't remember. Very common. 
I'm too scared to speak out about the ones that I don't actually remember in therapy. What if it's not real and just some weird thing my brain came up with? But then again, I feel like I'd need to tell my therapist about what it is to be able to leave it behind. Any advice would be welcome. Yeah, we have to talk it out. Things that we don't actually have memory of could be because of dissociation. Because if you guys don't know, when we, one of the symptoms of dissociation is not having memory of the thing happening. So that could be why we don't have a memory of it. Also, um, we stuff things down and repress memory so that we can keep going forward. Um and it can help just talking it out. That's why trauma timelines and things we put together are like living, breathing documents that we can change because we have things that crop up and memories that we think are connected. And then we're like, oh no, that wasn't. Or, oh, I thought that happened to me. But actually, I remember it was my cousin who told me that happened to her, right? We can have all sorts of me- memories can get confusing. It's okay to talk them out and to not have all the answers. No one's saying that that has to be what it was. We just need to talk about it in an honest way and feel okay doing that. And so I really encourage you to speak up and talk to your therapist about it. Because like you said, it's going to be the only way for you to be able to process it through and even have a sounding board as you figure out what happened and what is real, what is not. You should be able to work through it and question it, ask people in your life as you feel comfortable. And yeah, kind of tease out that mess that it can feel like in your brain. Okay. Another person says, as an add-on, can you tell uh, some, oh, can you tell us something about the different styles or types of flashbacks and if they are treated differently? I always thought there were only visual flashbacks, but I learned from my therapist that there are non-visual flashbacks. Yeah, like body memory things and that I've actually had a lot of them, but I didn't notice them back then. For example, I only have visual flashbacks if I'm extremely triggered, but as soon as I'm relaxed or if I try to relax, I have body flashbacks. Not sure if this is the correct English term. Yeah, I'd call it that body memories, body flashbacks. And it feels like someone is touching me, even though no other person is physically around. I also tend to have emotional flashbacks which make me feel and sometimes act like a little child or a teen. Mm -hmm. I often question my flashbacks, especially the non-visual ones, but I guess the first step is to accept that those things might have, at least in parts, happened. Yeah, that's um, The Body Keeps the Score is an amazing book, talks especially about like body flashbacks. And that meme that I love so much, like I wish my body would stop keeping the score, right? 100%. Um, But yeah, we can have, you know, body memories where we feel things in our body, but we don't have the the actual visual or auditory memory of it, any kind of other memory. I've had patients who only can have the sound or the smell, even our, like our five senses can be broken into memory. Memory is interesting, right? And when we repress it or when it's traumatizing, we can't process it. Our body stores it away in the ways that it can. And this can be emotional where we act out um, in childlike ways. That's why a lot of people can have like regressive tendencies when they mean we regress into a younger age. Um, I've had people start wetting the bed and things like that, even as they process through trauma, um, because that can be, you know, kind of bodily and emotionally, we can kind of go back, revert back to when things were happening. Um, Yeah, it can be experienced in a ton of different ways. It's really just our body's way of storing what happened to us so that we can move through it and survive. And then when we take, when it comes time to process and start working through, they can all come back up or they can start coming back up as a way to tell us, Hey, we need to process this. This happened. Can we, you know, find a therapist or start working through it? Because yeah, flashbacks happen in all sorts of different ways. Essentially a flashback is, I I don't know if this would be the 
the correct definition, but the way I would define a flashback is when in some shape or form, we are reminded of a situation that happened to us that maybe we have memory of, or we don't have memory of, and it triggers us through, you know, smell, uh, touch, taste, visual, body, emotional. It can be a lot of different ways that it can trigger that memory or that something can trigger an experience and we can be brought back in one of those forms. Um, it's really just flashing back to another event. That's probably clear. Jeez, Katie. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I hope that that at least validates some of your experiences and lets you all know that flashbacks look and feel different depending on the person experiencing them and depending on how your body or mind tried to store it and stuff it away so that you could survive. Let's move on to question number five. This question says, how do you get out of dissociation when it's always there? It says, hey, Katie, and happy Thursday. I have derealization and depersonalization since 2018, and it never goes away. It doesn't only appear when I'm triggered. I just always feel so spaced out. Nothing seems to be working. I've tried skills, movements, sports, drinking more water, everything my therapist has told me would help. However, it doesn't. I just feel like there's a glass wall between me and the world and nothing makes me get through it. Sometimes it even feels like I just need to open my eyes wider. I don't know how to explain it, but it just gets worse sometimes, never better. Is there anything to actually get out of this constant state of, dis- state of dissociation? Thanks for everything you do. Hugs from Munich. I'm so sorry you're going through this. I've heard this from a lot of members of our community that they'll have dissociation that lasts for a really long time. And it's super uncomfortable. Um, and my overall advice Obviously, there's things that I mention all the time. Cold water or maybe a cold plunge, if you can like go to a place that has cold plunges or saunas, changing the temperature of our body is probably the best. You can even just dunk your face in ice water, like get a big bowl, fill it with water and ice. I want you to dunk your face in it. That diving reflex can sometimes pull us out. Just give that a try. Now, that's my go-to is changing the temperature. Um and see if that helps. Now, one thing and one question that I do have is, are we currently in an unsafe environment? Meaning that either the person who traumatized us or abused us is still around, or we still don't feel safe or neutral in our space. Because I find dissociation continues when we don't feel any sense of safety or security, not even a little bit. So our brain is still hardwired and we it wants to pull us out. Um and I'm wondering if that's your situation. If so, we you know, we would want to try to find ways to put ourselves in a position where we do feel a little bit better or we can, you know, um create some kind of safety in our environment. Okay? So that's something else. And now here's a third and I wrote about this in my book Traumatized. Now I'm not a neurologist, I'm not a doctor. But there is something called stellate ganglion block or SGB. Now, stellate ganglion block has been around since the 20s and it used to be used for people who I think it was like throat constriction, like trouble swallowing and things like that, because it's it's a nerve, the stellate ganglion. It runs right, it's right around here. Anyway, we find you can read about it. I encourage you to look into it. They inject our stellate ganglion, um, and it shrinks it because they find that those of us with trauma in our life have what 
kind of like an overgrown stellate ganglion and it has turned into like this like for lack of a better term like a root system and when the people get stellate ganglion block obviously talk to your doctor but it shrinks that root system and people find hypervigilance and other PTSD symptoms to go down. There was a gentleman on um, Joe Rogan's podcast. He was a veteran. He talked about it at length. I bet if you just Google Stellate Ganglion Block Joe Rogan interview, you can find it. I find it to be really great to hear from people in long form talking about something they've been through like that versus me trying to summarize because, again, not a neurologist, not a doctor. Um, so, you know, it's important to get information from people who've done it themselves or physicians themselves. Now, I'm the reason I brought this up is because I have a feeling that you're in a constant state of hypervigilance and that's what's causing this dissociation. And obviously we can do grounding techniques and we can try other things, which it sounds like you've done, but keep at that. Um, but also there's that. And that could potentially take away this urge. Now, I don't know. Again, I'm not a doctor. But in my book, Traumatize, you can get it at your local library if you can't afford it. Um, ask them to pick it up or, you know, find it. There's cheaper ways. I'm sure there's used on Amazon too. Um, but anyways, my book, Traumatize, I talk a lot about different ways to treat this. And that's just another one that I think we should know about. People should talk about more because it can be so exhausting and it's impossible to process the trauma because we're still dissociated and so frustrating. So I'm sorry you're going through that. I hope some of this is helpful. Um, again, read about it, ask questions about it. I'm not a doctor, but I want you to have all the information so that you can make the best decision for you. Okay. Moving on to question number six, this question says, Hey, Katie, my question is, how can I love and respect my body? I was physically punished as a child and sexually abused by my husband, and I can't find the connection to my body, only self-harm or eating disorder episodes. It's going to take time. I'm so sorry that you've been through this. Unfortunately, when we grow up being, you know, physically abused as a child, we find ourselves in abusive situations as adults because that's what we're used to and that's what we're comfortable with. I know it sucks and I'm sorry, but I would encourage you take your time. If you're able to do some trauma-informed yoga, some somatic, like therapeutic movement, please look into that. I know Hope for Recovery has a trauma-informed yoga class. Um, there used to be in LA, and I think she put it online since COVID, um, but don't quote me on this, it's been a few years, but it used to be called Red Tent Rising. She used to teach yoga at a couple of the eating disorder treatment centers I've worked at. I loved her. It's very, it's trauma-informed, beautiful. I used to do it with the girls sometimes. Um, anyways, long story short, I encourage you to check out like even just Googling trauma-informed yoga online, some of that could be really helpful for you in reconnecting with your body. It could be overwhelming. So let your therapist know, talk about it, make sure that she feels you're in a place to try that. Um, other, But other things like that, I think would be really helpful. And then, like I said, some of the somatic experiencing stuff, like the water on your skin and finding ways to get back in your body, it could be overwhelming at first. So take your time, go slow. And then when it comes to kind of healing from the sexual abuse by your husband, I don't know if you were sexually abused as a child, but the Courage to Heal workbook is good for that. But in the, I think the eating disorder space, a, a book that I would encourage you to read would be Eating in the Light of the Moon. And that talks about body stuff also. Um, 
those are just some of the ways that I think we're going to have to get you back into a space of loving and respecting your body. It's going to take time. Essentially, no one has shown you how to do that. Everyone's done the opposite. So it's almost like we don't even know how and we have to give ourselves time to learn. So be patient. And there's going to be some inner child work, I'd assume, will need to be done. I have a workshop on my website at katiemorton.com if you're interested. But you'll get there and know that, unfortunately, recovery is not linear. It's not like A to B to C to D. Yay, I'm all better. It can be swirly twirly, two steps forward, one step back. So be patient with yourself as you work through it. It does get easier. It does get better. We're just learning, okay? Hang, hang in there. It will get better. Now, there was a comment on this as, how do you know when you're ready for sex mentally and not just physically after sexual trauma or abuse in the past? Great question. I have a girlfriend now, and while I enjoy sexual intimacy with her, I find myself sometimes being overwhelmed afterwards and that my feelings and thoughts of disgust over my body and sexuality are being triggered. In these moments, I notice that I'm not entirely okay with me being a person with a sexual desire. That'd be interesting to dig into. Why are we not okay? What do we assume about someone with sexual desire? What judgments or beliefs have we had as children or were told? It might be some religious trauma in there, but we'll get into that. So I'm not okay with me being a person with sexual desire and needs and that having sex or masturbating is an activity that's sometimes shameful for me. Is this a sign that I shouldn't be having sex yet? I'm also a trans guy, mid-transition, so dysphoria is playing an extra role in this as well. I know I haven't healed from my trauma yet, but is it a good idea to have sex if you notice that you sometimes get slightly triggered afterwards? I don't want to talk to my girlfriend about my trauma, so I don't think I would like to talk about these issues with her yet. Okay, that's okay. No one says we have to. I encourage you at some time when you feel ready to start that conversation, one little conversation at a time, you don't have to dump it all. One small conversation at a time um, can be really helpful when you're ready. But to answer your questions, so how do you know when you're ready for sex? We might not know. It's going to be scary sometimes, I feel like, no matter what, especially when we're healing. But I feel like the way that we would know we're ready is because we're interested in it. Most of my patients who are not ready have zero interest and do it out of maybe like a feeling that they need to because like not, I don't want to call it a responsibility, but it's almost like a to-do on their to-do list because they're like, well, I'm in a relationship and I should do this for my partner. It's done honestly out of love, but more out of that uh, feeling like you have to. Okay. So if you're wanting it, then I think you're ready. That doesn't mean that we won't have, we won't be triggered and things might be not be complicated. I encourage you to, if I hope you're in therapy, because also you're mid-transition, there's a lot going on there. And I know that can be, you know, mood-wise, especially with hormones can be very, it can be a lot to manage. So I hope you're seeing someone, please talk to them about this because I think there's something to detangle, um, like that being a person with a sexual desire and needs isn't okay. And I'm wondering where you heard that message. I'm wondering if there's religious trauma there that maybe needs talked through and worked through, maybe just teased out. Um, also, you know, might be helpful for you to understand your triggers and what is it that comes up afterward, you know, after you are sexually intimate, take some time and like journal. I know it sounds like so not sexy, but like, you know, if you're, you're, you've already finished the sexual act and you're finding yourself going through this, it's okay to sit and write for a little bit about what comes up, or at least let yourself think about it. Don't have, you don't have to shove it down. We need to be able to process that. Or maybe it's after the fact when you're on your own, you feel safe enough to go through that. But 
Don't stuff it. Instead, be curious, not judgmental about what's going on with you and for like inside, because there's that shame that's coming along, you know, it's obviously tied to the sexual trauma and abuse in your past. Um, but we have to challenge those old beliefs and thoughts to move through it. So let's start being curious and not judgmental and take your time with it. Okay. But if you have, if you have any desire, then you're ready. Okay. But again, doesn't mean we won't be difficult. Let's move on to question number seven. And it says, hi, Katie, my daughter, who's nine, struggles with emotion regulation. She fidgets a lot when she's angry, nervous, or anxious. She's super sensitive, for example, to certain smells and clothing touching her skin. She describes it as uncomfortable and seems overwhelmed with her emotional outbursts. She shouts a lot, tries to bite herself, and throws a tantrum. Is she on the spectrum? Autism spectrum disorder? Do you think she's autistic in any way? This sounds a lot like autism to me. I don't know how to help her. I try to validate her emotions and her experiences and try to soothe her or suggest distractions and coping skills. But the most common answer is this isn't helping me. And if I ask her what could be helpful, she answers with, I don't know. Any tips? And is it possible that she puts my inner struggles into words? She seems to tell my own thoughts or show my emotions in her outbursts. That's interesting. For example, about hating herself and her body and about not being able to control her actions or certain compulsions. It triggers me. And I often find myself engaging in dysfunctional coping strategies afterwards, like binging, purging, self-harm. I don't have enough energy left for myself. How can I help her without letting it overwhelm me? Thanks for all you do and sorry for any mistakes. English isn't my first language. You did great. Now, I am curious about a lot of things. Um, Number one, I'm curious, obviously, about autism spectrum disorder. I think it would behoove you to get your daughter tested to find out because that could come along with its own levels of support. Maybe we could get her a therapist, get her an occupational therapist, have her work on finding ways to work with, not against her brain. Because I'm not, obviously, I'm not autistic and I don't know what it's like, but I've heard from members of our community that when we're autistic, we can feel, um, it's almost like, all of our senses, you know, we receive the messages very clearly. Theirs can be like frayed wires. So it's like, and things can be incredibly uncomfortable. We can get overstimulated really quickly. So like going to a loud restaurant or a concert or something can be overwhelming. There's no way. Just from the noise and too many people could potentially brush into us. There's too much, you know, the food and the smells. There could be too much going on. Too many things, sensor, like sensory overload. Um, and everyone's going to have a different level of ability to manage the the sensory inputs, right? So I'm not saying that no autistic person can do these things. I'm saying some things can be overwhelming. You guys correct me if I'm wrong in the comments, okay? I'm always up for learning more. Um, so I'm curious about that. I think getting her tested for that could potentially open up a whole nother avenue for support. On the other side, I also am very curious about borderline personality disorder. And you might want to look into dialectical behavior therapy in your area or any kind of emotion regulation. I find I, I find DBT to be the most beneficial for my patients with BPD, um, but I've heard from other people they didn't like DBT and that's fine. It's not going to work for everyone. Um, we might be a somatic experiencing might be incredibly helpful. Attachment-based therapies might be helpful, but we might want to find her some supports to have some tools. And you can even look up online emotion regulation tools, DBT, 
and there's like worksheets and things you can print out. I have workbooks in my Amazon shop, amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton. There's a ton of DBT tools and things in there that you can access for her. I'm just not sure if that is what's going on. I, I do. I mean, she's nine, so it's a little difficult. Like we can't diagnose her with BPD yet because that it technically can't be diagnosed you're 18, but she can get some help for how she's experiencing life. But the fact that she is super sensitive to smells and cl- I haven't heard that. I don't know if you guys have heard that. Uh, if you have borderline personality disorder and you, I've just have not experienced that with my patients. Um, and the shouting a lot and biting herself and throwing tantrum, I'm very suspicious of something else going on. So I would reach out. I would have her do some psychological testing, figure out what's happening. Also go take her to the doctor and get a physical just to make sure there's nothing else organic going on here. We want to make sure that we assess her fully to make sure she's getting the right kind of support. And of course, this is going to be too much for you. You're not meant to do it alone. And that's why it's like triggering you. So make sure that you're getting her the support she needs so that you can get the support you need and you're not, you know, we're both taking care of ourselves, right? Because I know it's being a parent, I cannot even imagine the amount of work and effort that goes in. And of course, this is just a little too much for you right now. So let's let's look into other supports and other answers as to what's going on. Because it doesn't sound like just emotion regulation, okay? Let's move on to question number eight. This question says, hey, Katie, I have a question regarding childhood sexual abuse. I'm in the process of trying to tell my counselor the details of what happened, but for some reason, it feels like I'm not telling the truth. Like maybe my brain doesn't know the difference. So I guess my question is, what's the difference between remembering a detail in a trauma or imagining it? Also, does it make... um does it make me sick if I'm imagining these things? For context, my brother sexually abused me when I was um, seven through nine, and he went away to the military, but now is coming back home after a suicide attempt. Between remembering and imagining, I hope this makes sense. Thanks for all that you do. It's normal when we start to try to talk through our trauma to question it, and I would just encourage you to tell your therapist this as you're talking or to your counselor. As you're talking to them about it, say, sometimes it's hard for me to know if I'm really remembering this. I feel like my brain's playing tricks on me. Now, trauma memories are complicated. The thing that I always have to tell my patients, I'm like, would you want to make this up? Would this be something that you would come up with and be distressed over and need therapy for? Like, just think about it. Let's check our facts here. Last time I checked, I don't know of anyone who would remember part of a trauma and then want to make up other parts. I've never heard of that. Have you? I don't know. Who'd want to make up something like that? Who'd want to think that something like that happened to them? Nobody. Chances are you're not imagining it. It's just not memory or experiences that you recall often or allow yourself to even accept as fact because it can be really painful to do that. It can be really overwhelming, right? So give yourself a beat to work on more of maybe less of the talking it through or less of the, is this real or not? And more of the acceptance that something happened. It might be some inner child work that's a little more helpful for you than talking it through in detail. Maybe talking it through in detail isn't the best way for you. I don't know. I'm just throwing out ideas and these are thoughts that I have about it. But it is very normal for us to go through that because they could be repressed memories. They could be memories we um we aren't fully comfortable talking about because we never have. And we almost feels because we haven't talked about it. We're like, did it really happen that way? I don't even know. And it was a long time ago. There's a lot of reasons we can question our own memory. It's okay to do that. 
Don't think that you have to be 100% certain. Talk to your counselor about it. Tell them this is what's coming up, that I'm this, I'm questioning this and that. And, uh, and it's like, it, you know, it's hard for me. It's unfortunately very normal. I have a whole chapter in my book, Traumatized, just about trauma memories. Um, you know, a lot of people think they're processing the hippocampus and different parts of our brain. And that can be why we can experience them in our bodies or why they uh, come up in bits and pieces and not all together. You know, it, can, it kind of they're complicated. So of course you're having a tough time. I just want you to know that's normal. It doesn't mean that the memories aren't real, but I want you to feel free to talk about it in the way that you're experiencing it, that it's it's complicated and I don't know and I hate it blah, because that's part of your process. Does that help? I hope so. It's, it's just very normal and I wish it wasn't. And I wish there were more answers, but we don't fully understand, you know, why the memories are like that. I think it has a lot to do with like shame, blame, guilt, embarrassment, as well as the fact that the memories cannot be completely formed. There might be like dissociation blockers in there. We're like, I don't remember anything about that. I remember this and I don't remember anything. And so that can be kind of complicated, but be patient with yourself. Keep talking it through because it does get better. Okay. Final question. Question number nine says, Hey Katie, I've been in therapy for a few months now for an eating disorder, focusing specifically on compulsive exercise. I know that exposure therapy is the only way to get used to the feeling of not exercising, but I can't stop. Also, it's so hard to stop knowing that exercise is a highly praised behavior in our society. Thanks for all your amazing content. Of course. Hmm. Oh, compulsive exercise. I... You, I mean, we. I worked in a treatment center where they couldn't, you, it was not allowed. And the ways that the people in that center would try to get away with some kind of form of exercise, you guys wouldn't even believe it. It's wild. Um, I know the urge is strong. It's part of your eating disorder. It's uh, this faux sense of control that your eating disorder gives you. And you feel like if you do that and you have to earn everything, it's exhausting. And the equations and the calculations of how much you have to do and it's never enough. And the number grows. And blah, 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 blah. Trust me. Um, I, I understand. Now, you cannot get rid of it cold turkey. Like I know you're talking about exposure therapy, like you have to stop and experience it. You do. And that will be part of it but it will be slow and steady and noticing what comes up for you because truly the way out of this compulsive exercise cycle is to figure out what purpose it serves for you. It's getting to the root of your eating disorder. It might be more helpful for you to be in a day program or a treatment center if we're not able to do it on our own. There's no shame in that. That's why so many of those centers exist, okay? So getting some support, understanding what purpose this serves for you, digging into that root, taking your time, is going to be the key. And then instead of trying to remove the compulsive exercise and be like, you can't do this anymore. How about, let's say we ran X number of miles. What if we just cut that down by a half a mile or a quarter mile? Or what if we worked out for five less minutes than we did the day before? All of that's gradual. And then notice what comes up for you. Then I want you to journal. I used to have my patients stop doing it before they thought it was enough. I know it sucks. You're already hating it a little shy of what's enough. And then I want you to journal for, you know, 15 to 30 minutes about what comes up for you. And you're probably going to be pissed at me. You're going to be angry at yourself. You're going to be just the anger. Okay. That's, you know, then we want to dig into it. That's really helpful in therapy. I, it's usually anger that comes out first. It's protective. So then I always ask my patients, I'm like, what is it that we're really angry about? You won't let me do, well, it's not that I won't let you. 
it's that we're trying to stop this from continuing. What else are we angry about? Well, I'm angry, you know, we have to figure out where it's coming from. Anger is protecting us from experiencing probably hurt, pain, remembering abuse, acknowledging the, I don't know, the trauma in our past. It can come from a lot of different places. So slowly lessen the exercise and then notice what comes up because in that is your healing. Okay. Those are your answers. It sucks, but when it comes to stopping unhealthy coping skills like eating disorders, self-injury, like compulsive exercise, shopping addiction, all that stuff, when we don't do it quite as much as we want, how do we feel about it? It's just, that's that's all the, the information that we're going to need to get ourselves out, okay? I hope that helps. Talk with your therapist about it and share with them what comes up when you slowly stop and yeah, keep me posted. Okay. Thank you all so much for sending in your questions. Thank you for all of your support, for sharing this podcast, for giving it good reviews. I love you all. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your week. Do your homework and I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.